What is going on? Almost canon listeners. Almost canonite. Almost canoner. You know, we're having a, a bit of, de- of a debate here. People are asking me what a what a canoner is. Um and it's exactly what it sounds like, man. It's it's someone who who would aim and fire the cannon. So are you a, an almost canonite? Or are you an almost canoner? Uh, let me know when you figure it out. But anyway, anyway, you know, that's not a big deal. But what is a big deal is our guest tonight. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to introduce him right now. So, our guest tonight has lived a life most listeners of Almost Canon only dream about. His name's Tom Pollard, and he's a an award-winning filmmaker. He's a high-altitude cameraman, a professional mountaineer, and an explorer of the world who has been to over 26 countries, taken part in a dozen-plus expeditions across the globe. He's even spent half an hour at the top of the world. He's filmed things for NOAA, for NOVA, PBS, Nat Geo, the BBC. He's received several awards and many accolades from his work with orcas and mako sharks as well as his time with explorers uh, Bradford and Barbara Washburn in Alaska, of all places. Um, And that's not even to mention his multiple expeditions up Everest. I think he's been up there four times, four or five times. Um, But in 1999, at around 27,000 feet, Tom was able to document the discovery of a mountaineer who vanished near the summit of Mount Everest in the 1920s. That climber was George Mallory. Today, Tom Pollard is going to not only discuss his many adventures that he's had over the years, but tell us about a mystery that takes place where the earth touches the sky. So without further ado, Tom Pollard. I'd mentioned you had four trips up Everest. Yeah. Right. Four. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to talk to you about the, the mystery, the Mallory mystery, mainly. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But before we got into that, I wanted to know what it's like up there. Like, I've seen the, the shows that, you know, and it's just it's so crazy. Like, it's so nuts that people go up there. Oh, yeah. It's the being at altitude in the cold and the extremes. It really pushes you emotionally, not only physically, but emotionally to the limit. And I went each of my four expeditions to Mount Everest as a cameraman, you know, a high altitude cinematographer. And so I always, I would always joke with my friends who were writers and all they had was their journal and a pencil or a pen that they made the the obviously correct (laughs) choice because they didn't have to take their camera out with numbed fingers and try to get a shot. And so you really realize just how difficult altitude is when you're up there because the desire to do work diminishes drastically with every foot or every thousand feet you go up. 
So in terms of what it's like, the area above about 26,000 feet or 8,000 meters is an area called the death zone. Mm, and yeah. It's aptly named <laughs> because the human body can't survive there. Like if, well, one, if somebody just deposited a human body fresh, if, you know, healthy, everything at 26,000 feet, it would be like taking the, the air pressure out of an airplane. Just everybody would die, you know, within about three minutes, but you acclimatize, you spend time working your way up to that altitude and what your body does is it develops a lot of red blood cells in order to carry more oxygen to the extremities, your fingertips, your brain primarily. And in so doing, it makes your blood really thick. So you have to drink a lot of water, you dehydrate. But the main, and for me, the prevailing thing that happens up there is just these nagging and pervasive, almost debilitating headaches Ooh. That, that do go away, that get better and better, but it, it's like being really sick, you know, like a day that you'd call in sick to work and that might be a good day up there. And so your body is all puffy and, you know, the, the fluids have accumulated, like it's called edema you know, where you're, you know, yeah. you're swelling. So the desire to do work is hard up there and, it, and it's hard to put one foot in front of the other in the death zone. You know, you'd literally die. That was kind of a long answer. And I'm not sure if that was very a good of an explanation, but essentially the amount of oxygen in the air up there is about one third of what we're breathing right now here, essentially at sea level. So even having this conversation in a tent at 26,000 feet, we'd be huffing and puffing, literally. Wow. And your voice would be dry, ugh, you'd be thirsty, and you lose your appetite, headache. It's amazing anybody can do anything up there, let alone film a documentary. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's so crazy. It's that's that you have to go through that for what you could see as the greatest achievement, you know, of your life, maybe just to make it up there, you know? It's like you got to go through the ringer to get it. Yeah, it is. It, it you know, it now, I mean, I'm not that old. I'm old, relatively speaking. I'm 61 now. And my, but my first expedition to Everest, I was 31. And there are a lot of people up there in their early 20s starting to guide up there. And, um, you know, back then, I felt like there was something of a, of a bragging rights to be able to suffer as much or more than anybody else, you know, to go through the pain and the, the long time that you spend away from home and not being able to communicate with people that you care about or you wanted to talk to. And, you know, just those lingering fears, but um, you know, it being able to get to, I, you know, I've been to four expeditions. I've actually only been to the top once been up in the death zone many times and seen a lot of people die up there and bodies, things like that. But the idea of getting to the top, I visualized in my mind thousands and thousands of times. It was as if when I got there, it was the most anticlimactic thing that ever happened. I was like, yeah, I know how this feels because I've been there every morning, every day, every night. 
when I wake up in the middle of the night, it's always there. So I got there and I was like, let's get our pictures and get out of here. It was <laughs> oh, really, and, but for me, it was a little different on that day that I made it to the summit. And this is back in 2016. So I was on my third expedition and my first opportunity to get to the summit. I've only had one summit day, never even got to have a chance for the summit until this day. We left at eight o'clock at night and all the summit waves were gone. So it was kind of quiet on the mountain. And we went according to a pace that we thought would get us there at about six in the morning. So, you know, maybe 10 hours and we hauled us <laughs> and, I, and we really went fast. We got, we got to the summit at two 40 in the morning and it was like, Oh, Oh my God. But the cool thing was there was an absolute brilliant full moon. It was the, the peak of what they call the Buddha full moon. It was 22nd of May in 2016, right at 2.40 in the morning. And it was glowing everywhere. You could see mountains for, I don't know how many miles, but it looked like hundreds of miles, just glowing in the distance, sticking above clouds that were below us. And so we spent, you know, a half hour on the summit, nobody else there. So that part I didn't know was going to happen. I always pictured that happening during the day or with the sun rising right. or something. We went way too fast. And then we were back down um, in three hours from that. So our round trip was about 10 hours. And most people are still climbing in 12 hours after they leave. We were like, we were just lapping people. It was pretty cool. It's good yeah. to be strong, dude, you know? And you were you That's able to film that? Awesome. Yeah, well, my filming duties on that expedition s stopped at about 27,500 feet. We were filming, uh, we were looking for this camp that had been abandoned back in the 1950s. And it was in a place that nobody ever goes on the mountain. So we went over to this camp. And once I got that footage, I didn't have to do any more filming. And the guy who was running the expedition pulled the plug on the expedition. He was like, I don't want anybody to die. So we're going home. And so I fulfilled all my duties of my job as a cameraman to 27 and a half thousand feet. And in, this was helping him. So he didn't have to pay me. I said, I quit. I'm, I'm off. I quit the expedition. And he goes, you mean I don't have to pay you anymore? And I go, starting now. Boom. We shook hands. And then I went to the summit that night and he was, he was in base camp by the time, you know, we were back down in camp like the next day. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just obsessed with getting to the summit and nothing. Right. so I, I lost out on a lot, a good, about three weeks of pay because of that, but it was worth it. Right. So this might sound like a dumb question, but I've seen, you know, a couple of videos on, I don't know, the discovery channel or Nat Geo. And um, when I picture the mountain, I picture it just being, you know, there's like this trail and that trail. You can only take those trails. The rest, it's just like, you don't go there at all. Like, what does it look like up there? Yeah, in some areas, you have to stay exactly in this one particular spot, or generally speaking, in the steeper areas, if you slip or fall, and you're not clipped into a rope, you could fall. Well, some people have fallen off near the summit, and they literally go 8,000 feet before their body stops. Wow. So there's, it's a long way to fall. And so in many, you know, in 1999, my first expedition there, which was on the Tibetan side, and 
I think they'll probably ask me about this later. We were looking for the body of a guy who had disappeared up in the death zone. We were well off route. We were climbing at a probably a 45 plus degree angle, which doesn't sound that bad. But if you were to trip and stumble at 45 degree angle on that part of the mountain, we would have gone thousands of feet before we stopped. And we would have certainly been dead by the time we got halfway there. So, so yeah, but the mountain is so vast. I think about it. It's Mount Everest. It's 29,000 plus feet in height, 8,850 meters in height. And it is massive. It just covers such an enormous amount of territory. And there's gigantic hanging glaciers and you can hear crevasses and ice cracking and creaking and groaning and you know, the thud of an avalanche that you don't even see and a rock tumbling and echoing off a different wall. I mean, it's so vast that yeah. it's hard to imagine. It's like being on the moon or something. And, uh, but it's, it's the place that I wanted to be. So I was, it's, it's heaven for me up there, but it's deadly. You know, a lot of people, you see a lot of people die up there and I've seen it way too many times. And, you know, so the so the risk, the peril of of attaining your dreams to climb the mountain is great, you know, and, you know, people who have children at home or a family, a wife and kids and all that, or they're the main breadwinners when they die. It's there's a lot of sad stories of people being consumed by their passion and their ambition to get to the top of a pile of rocks. Right. But what is it? What's it all about? You know, right. it's kind of like, you know, if you were a fly fisherman, you might slip and fall and hit your head and die in a rapid. But chances are a fly fisherman don't die like right. casting people <laughs> yeah. die on Everest all the time. Four people have already died this year on the mountain. Oh, wow. The One guy season just started. Yeah. This is it. We're in, we're just about to hit peak season. It always happens in May. And so because the there's a jet stream which carries the weather all around the planet and most of the year the jet stream is low like 26 27,000 feet scouring the mountain and usually in May sometime around now like toward the end of May the jet stream will lift up over 30,000 feet and there'll be these very calm relatively warm periods where that's when you you get to the summit and back. Hmm. If you get stuck in that jet stream, you're doomed. Yeah, that's when a lot of like 1996 disaster, that's the jet stream lowered back down. And I think it was nine people got killed in that storm, maybe 11, I think it was. So it's got to be really careful. Right? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's so exciting and so incredible. You almost can't picture it without being there. Yeah. And that, that was always my challenge as a cameraman was to bring home footage that would exemplify and give people a taste of what it was like. And it's almost impossible because if, if you see a gorgeous photo picture or video shot from 26,000 feet and the wind is blowing and you're watching it from your couch in a, in a warm room, it's really hard to understand just that that feeling of boy one bad step and you could die mm, you know right. some people just die 
in their sleep up there, you know. So it, it's it's beautiful though and stark and dangerous. And that was part of what I was after. I was in pursuit of that. I'm not, I don't feel that way the way I used to, but I was all about that stuff. So back in, was it 1924? Yeah. Did they know about the whole jet stream? Well, they went late actually. And they went uh, in 1924 when George Mallory and Sandy Irvin, the British guys who disappeared there on June 8th of 1924, mm. um, the, it, the weather was already getting pretty bad. It was already deteriorating. And the jet stream is usually part of what carries the monsoon storms yep. up from southern India and it washes up the subcontinent and then it ends, ends up going northward and northward and up and over the Himalayan mountain range. And um, when they left in June, on June 8th, the, the, yeah, the weather was gone. They, they missed their peak period. So as the years went on, they started shifting their focus a little bit earlier and earlier. And it wasn't, yeah, but very few, like only a small percentage of people have ever summited in June. It almost never happens. It just, first of all, they close the mountain. And they kick you off. Like they won't let you stay past usually May 28th or 29th. They'll end your permit. If you come down, they'll shoo you off. You have to go hide up there, which is pretty hard to do on that. I should have done this first. But so Mount Everest itself, it straddles, I think, Tibet and Nepal, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The Himalayan mountain range. Um, and there are two major routes. Yes. That you can take. Yeah, two primary routes. One is from China or Tibet. A lot of people prefer to call it Tibet. And that's on the north. And then on the south side is the south. It's called the South Coal or the Southeast Ridge route. And that's from Nepal. And that's the route that I summited on. But I've been, I've filmed expeditions, two on each side. So I've been, been to both. One, my first in 1999. And my most recent in 2019 was in Tibet. And then 2014 and 2016 was in Nepal. And Nepal has a lot of cool stuff like trekking into base camp and indulging in the, the culture and the people and the, the warmth of the, the Sherpa culture, which are the people who live in that region, is uh, almost in, it's intoxicating. They're so kind and generous and welcoming. And then in Tibet, China, it's just such a different, colder feeling. And, uh, it's, you know, it's China occupied Tibet. So there, you get a feeling that you're being watched and um, you are now, right. especially now. Yeah, it's different. It's just a different world. But the mountain, I love the mountain more. I like to be on the actual mountain on the Tibet side. It's cleaner. There's not as many crevasses and glaciers that can get you more rocky and straightforward and they keep the mountains so much cleaner too they have strict rules on carrying garbage and human waste out and they remove bodies too they don't, they don't like dead people laying around up there we're in nepal yeah. like they're just there's literally you know garbage and human waste everywhere and i mean you know it's not that bad but it there's right. a lot of people there there's not there's five five hundred almost five hundred permits to climb this year alone 
in Nepal. And for every person who has a permit to climb, the average is one, you'd get one or two high altitude guides or Sherpa would climb with you. So that's about 1,200 people will be on the mountain. That's 1,200 people taking craps every day, yeah. you know, dumping their garbage and needing to take it back down. And a lot of people don't. And so it's, it's, they have to be really, really strict about it. And uh, so I've done, I've done videos literally about the garbage and human waste problem on K2, which is in Pakistan and Mount Everest. And uh, it's a problem and really get that talk about a divining rod for people, you know, people, all oh, you selfish mountaineers, all you rich white people going over there and shitting all over our mountain. And it's not completely untrue, mm. but it's, it's not necessarily us. It's a, it's kind of the culture over there. They need to make strict rules and have people pay fines. They need to they need to just, you know, say if if you're caught doing it or you need to bring this much garbage down, you pay this X number of dollars as a fine. So, but uh, but yeah. So to, that was a long answer to your question. <laughs> there, yeah, essentially two routes, but there are other routes that have been done, but they're much more seldom even attempted because they're so extremely difficult, really, really, really difficult to succeed on. But there's probably seven or eight other routes, you know, like on the Kangsheng face, which is the east. And uh, there've been two or three ascent, different routes there, but only a few ascents. And then the West Ridge, which I think has only been done four times. And that um, most people come out of Nepal to do that. And then it crosses over onto the North Face. Actually, one of the great pioneers of the West Ridge, Tom Hornbein, just died the other day. He was 92 years old. And there's a kuwar, which is this big gully that goes toward the summit, named after him. And uh, he was a remarkable guy, this short, he probably was like five foot eight, five foot six, maybe, slight man but an absolute monster on the mountain. Like those were the, and he did a new route and it only got repeated probably one or two times. So, yeah. So the great pioneers, that's, those are the guys who inspired me right from the get go. Right. So with those route, those, those seven other routes or, or so. Yeah. Those like routes that, that Mallory and, and others from, you know, way, way back. Were those be routes that they they tried to make it or? Yeah, a lot of those routes had not even been scoped out. And so in, back in the 1920s, Nepal, it was called the Kingdom of Nepal. And so there, nobody had permission to go there. You weren't allowed into the country. The first people who went into Nepal to actually scout the routes, that didn't happen I think it was 1948 or 1950. It was some Americans. It was uh, Eric Shipton and this guy, uh, Charlie Houston, who was just, they were both became world famous mountaineers. And, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're both long gone now, but really remarkable men. And, um, and so the, the British were able to get permission from the Tibetans, from the Dalai Lama had to sign off to allow them to go to the north side and attempt a route. And in 1922, they went there and scouted it out and then no idea what they're gonna do. Then they went again in 1920, oh no, no, 1921 was their first one. 1922, they got a little closer, then they settled it, 1924, boom, they had it all dialed in. 
And then, you know, Matt, that's the year Mallory and Irvin died and the hundredth mm-hmm. anniversary of them disappearing last scene within a thousand feet of the summit left the greatest mystery in, in what I think is the history of mountaineering. Mm. So, so people weren't allowed into the, the other side, the Nepal side till much later. So the first known ascent was Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay in 1953. And right. um, yeah, now that's, everybody goes there and Nepal has no regulations. Anybody who wants to climb the mountain, as long as you have $11,000 to plunk down on a permit, just the piece of paper, you're, you're, you can do it. Right, yeah. $5 million in permits alone this year. It's pretty, it's big business over there. Oh pretty yeah, I bet. Huge. All right. So let's, we should just jump right into the mystery. You said June, I think I wrote down June 8th, was it? Yep. June 8th. Mm-hmm. They were almost to the summit. Yep. It was like the the first step. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. So in 1924, it was the third British expedition to Mount Everest in Tibet. And the leader, at least the kind of the de facto leader of the expedition, was a guy who had been there on the two previous expeditions named George Mallory. He was 37 years old. He was determined to make it to the summit. And he was the one who was kind of the front end of the spear. He was the guy who kind of knew how to do it. And he had this new device, like an oxygen apparatus. And he chose a really young guy, 22-year-old guy named Andrew Sandy Irvin. And um, because he knew how to tinker with the oxygen apparatus. And after a couple of unsuccessful attempts by other men on the team, they were going to go for the final attempt on June 8th. And so at about 1250 in the afternoon, one of the other climbers on the expedition who was lower down the mountain, about 26,000 feet, looked up and he saw climbing up onto the ridge somewhere in the vicinity of the first or what's called the first or second step. Imagine like literally a bump on a ridge, Mm. a skyline. Um, He saw them ascending that ridge, moving toward the top. And then clouds came in and obscured his view of them and they disappeared and they were gone. And so the, the expedition tried to find them over the next week or so and went home without those two men. They, they were thought to be forever disappeared on the mountain with no knowledge of whether they became the first to summit Mount Everest. Now, if it was a subsidiary little mountain, a small peak somewhere, and they disappeared, they might have been forgotten names. Mm-hmm. Nobody would have cared. But this is the highest mountain in the world, the third pole, right? The South Pole, the North Pole, they had been conquered. And now the third pole, Mount Everest, Mallory and Irvin were seen pretty darn close to the top did they make it and nobody knew and so in 1953 hillary and norgay made it and so at least we know somebody made it because they came down alive and for all those years people wondered did mallory and irvin make it and um so there were reported sightings of old english dead Bodies, a body had been seen and 
possibly 1960 by a Chinese expedition. And then another time in 1975, a body was encountered and um, called an old English dead because he had tweed, you know, tweed jacket on and only two dead guys up there, Mallory and Irvin. So who the heck else is it going to be? Nobody else died up there. And we went back in 1999, 75 years after they disappeared, not a trace other than these rumored sightings of a body. And some of them kept under lock and key in China, not like they wouldn't share any information about it. We went in 1999, having a few clues, like we had a guide, a search manual. And the manual was a was kind of our little Bible, if you will, of where we were going to search in this area, let's say maybe six football fields that were at about 45 plus degree angles at about 26,000 to 27 or so, maybe 28,000 feet. So you're in the death zone, yeah. but it's below the ridge, you know, in this area where we believe they were because in, in 1933, the ice axe of Sandy Irvin was found on a on a little flat rocky area exact well it you know think about that nine years later they found his ice axe at over twenty eight thousand feet and it was about sixty feet below the ridge so we thought mm, maybe that was the place of an accident so we'd probably look in a fall line below that ice axe and then the sighting of a body in 1975 was not too far from that. So we drew, well, we, the researcher, this guy named Jochen Hemleb, a German guy, talk about obsessed with history. Great guy, but what a true friend of mine now, but completely obsessed with it. He drew a grid up on that part of the mountain. And our expedition, a film that was supported by the British Broadcasting Corporation and public broadcasting, the Nova science series we went with a team of climbers and i was the high altitude cameraman and to look for the body of of mallory and irvin and what we were really after wasn't just the body we were after the camera mm. thought you know maybe if they carried a camera to the summit and we went and found that camera people from kodak assured us that if the camera hadn't been destroyed and it was well-preserved, like say under a body protected, we'd be able to bring that film home and develop it and see if there was a summit photograph, right? Or not. Right. right? And so on the morning of May 1st in 1999, six of us went up interest. I did end up going to the body, but uh, six of us went up and, um, Conrad Anker, guy out of, uh, at the time, he was living in uh, Boulder, Colorado. He's now Bozeman, Montana. But um, he found the body of George Mallory at 26,750 feet, preserved perfectly where he was the day he died. And, you know, it was a absolutely mind-bending experience you know just this iconic human being and so a, a search took place in that period of time looking for a camera or any other artifacts an altimeter was found there were letters notes a little pencil in his pocket 
this little tin that had these things called meat lozenges. It would be like eating a Tic Tac, but it was like beef. Seriously, like it was crazy, you know? So, um, so no camera was found. And then, and then about 16 days, 15 days later, we went back up the mountain with a metal detector to look for the camera. And we were going to look for Irvin, but instead we decided to go look back at Mallory because we figured we had a better shot with the metal detector than to just to do this crazy search for Sandy Irvin. And um, that I went back up there with a guy named Andy Politz with the metal detector. And at that time, so if you can imagine, the position of his body was laying flat down uh, to the to the you know, the surface, his feet were perfectly downhill, his head was uphill, and his arms were kind of outstretched, right? And his and his elbows were at 90 degree angles. And um, his face was in the scree. And on that first search, the body never really got lifted up. Because over the 75 years, he had been essentially just little particles of snow had accumulated and frozen him into the surface. It was like he was embedded. You know, like in the middle of the winter, like think of a of a rock that might have landed in the middle of a pond or something, and you go to kick it, and it's it's part of the ice, right? It just doesn't move. That's kind of the way his body was. And so Andy and I spent an extensive amount of time excavating and extracting him, and we actually lifted his body up, and I crawled under the body, and was able to actually look at his face, which had not been done on that first search on May 1st. And um, the, the obviously it was like, did it look like George Mallory? And even though on the in his clothes, it had his name stitched in, G.L. Mallory, his yeah. middle name was Lee. You know, I looked at it, I was like, well, there he is, that just like the guy that was in the pictures. And he was perfectly preserved, his eyes were closed. His nose was just ever so slightly flattened, you know, maybe kind of just he landed, boom, and he right. the weight of his face or head on his face. But the most peculiar thing that to this day we still can't quite understand is over his left eye was a golf ball sized hole, literally punctured right through his forehead, like completely like a perfect golf ball size like boom right through his head with and you could just see the shards of the skull little bits of blood and i just dumbfounded i had there were no words andy what do you look and he was up standing up looking with the metal detector beep beep beep, beep trying to find i was like you're not gonna believe this what tell me tell me tell me and so i was explaining it to him what it looked like and and, and all the the nuances of the condition of his face. And I found a watch in his front pocket that had that was broken. The, the glass was off the, the watch. So it was put in his pocket. Many surmise that he put it in his pocket right before the accident might've taken place, which was after the time frozen on the watch was after they were seen mm. on the ridge, still alive. And, um, so to, to give you an example of how debilitating altitude is up there, um, 
we got back down in the dark to Camp 5, which is still at about 25,750 feet. That night, Andy sat down outside of the tent. All the other guys were down the mountain, sat down and uh, leaned back with his backpack on. And I said, let me make you some tea. We'd fire up the stoves. The stars were brilliant. You know, you see satellites going over. And we were just buzzing from this amazing experience being with George Mallory, one of the great icons in mountaineering history. And um, so to illustrate that point of how debilitating altitude is, I said, so Andy, that hole over his head and over his eye, it was just, I can't even believe it. And he looked at me, he goes, what are you talking about? I'm like, Andy, the hole over his head. He goes, what do you t- I don't even remember. Oh, you, man. Do you see a hole over his head? Like, oh my God. So <laughs> I went right into my tent, got my journal out and immediately like hole overhead. Do not forget. Right. <laughs> Shards of skull, you know, everything. And he, to this day, he's like, I don't remember. And, and I was the only one who looked at it. Right. And, and so yeah, so that was it. So, but we did not, we still did not find the camera. No camera, no answers to the clue. But, you know, the inquiring minds, this is like a mystery mm-hmm. view of a podcast, uh, you know, to, to can we solve the mystery today or tonight on this interview? <laughs> um, well, no camera, so no definitive proof. There were no nothing to indicate maybe they had been to the summit, no geological samples of say a rock from near the summit, nothing in their pockets or his pockets. And, um, but so if you're looking at the mountain, there's the summit and he was far West. So as you're looking, right. So as you're looking toward it, left would be East. So, right. Cause you're looking down South. Now he was very far East of the summit and his face was in really good shape there was no frostbite on his nose that i could detect he looked like in pretty good shape obviously other than the hole in his head which is a whole other thing Mm. and my conclusion in that moment was that they knew they weren't going to make it to the summit and they turned around and had an accident they pushed it just a little too far turned around and had their fatal accident in that in that period of time and he landed i'm sure he landed exactly where we found him i just i don't think he was he fell there i don't think he was moved in avalanches he was just frozen in and so we covered him up with rocks after that search said a prayer according to his family that we read they wanted us to read a psalm from the bible psalm 108 and uh, so we read that, covered him with rocks, and that was it. We were gone, and and now that you know, twenty four years have gone by since that day. Um, so many things I'd like to go back and redo, more pictures, figuring out did he have more contusions on his toes or on his fingers, or you know, like like did he was there more that I could have brought back for archaeologists or for forensic pathologists like who could study the the you know what trauma his body had because he had a his left uh 
was it his left leg was snapped no his right leg was snapped completely in half below the knee like 90 degree angle yeah open wound fracture like it looked like a chicken bone you could see the points of the bone sticking out and everything and then um only one boot was on his foot think about that his other foot was just bare hmm. or like you know no, and it for, as far as i could tell no frostbite on it none whatsoever so you know and then the watch in his pocket for like like that record like was broken no shards of glass in his pocket just the glass was gone so was he trying to wedge his arm into a rock broke the glass and that's like oh my watch put it in his pocket you know all these little clues like so tantalizingly close to giving us some answers and some clues and to this day we're still wondering you know i'm i have a following on my youtube channel of you know there are ten thousand people most of them are just into everest but a lot of people are Oh my God, more about the Mallory and Irvin mystery. They're just, people are truly fascinated by it. It's it's a, right. a mystery that I don't think will ever go away. And with the 100th anniversary coming up next year of their disappearance, you know, maybe we can find some more tantalizing clues. Are there plans to go uh, back to his body? There is a team that wants to return next year. Um, yep. And they have permission from China to go. I don't think China, this is great. If the Chinese are listening to your podcast, <laughs> I could be putting them in jeopardy. The Chinese do not like people doing these searches on their yeah. own. They're not into it at all. I've uh, noticed that listening to things from you and reading things online. I, I've put that together. <laughs> Yeah. So when, yeah, when we went in 2019, we were really being scrutinized by the, the officials, the Chinese Tibetan Mountaineering Association. And um, my buddy who I went there with and kind of planned the expedition with, his name is Mark Sinnott. He wrote a book that it's called The Third Pole, Mystery, yep. Obsession, and Death on Mount Everest. I don't make anything from him selling that book. So I'm not <laughs> but it's a cool book if you're really a sleuth if you're a detective this is a good one to read um and he it details extensively our 2019 expedition with national geographic to film and look for the body of sandy irvin and you know all the things that went wrong the things that went right on that expedition and our inability to really turn anything up of, of conclusive evidence but one of the things that we did discover um, we hired this guy who's a extremely experienced climbing guide on Mount Everest his name is Jamie McGinnis friend of mine um, we called him our guide but we're all high altitude mountain climbers but uh, he was our Everest guide if you will he said that some years ago maybe 2007 or 2006 he got a private tour of somebody's own personal museum in Tibet. And he said in that private museum in this guy's house, who's a fairly well-to-do guy who was a retired CTMA official, Chinese Tibet Mountaineering Association official. He saw a boot, a leather boot that looked very much like Mallory's boot. 
and there was a camera there. And he goes, he was afraid to take any pictures or ask too many questions. So it's tantalizing evidence. And so with a little digging, Mark Sinnott asked around and heard a story that in 1960 and again in 1975, the Chinese encountered a body that we believe was Sandy Irvin's body, found the camera, brought it home, and botched the development of the film. And so we're, for me personally, even though there's lots to do on the mountain, see what route they took, go two different directions on the route, I'd like to find the camera in that museum. Right. That to me is, that's the, that's what I'd like to go find. But, you know, you get, you you need money, you need somebody who speaks Chinese perfectly, you need to be under the radar not have anybody be suspicious of you for they don't like they, i'm telling you they do not like you snooping around it's especially nowadays i mean you don't want to be caught as like a spy or something oh you go straight <laughs> you to some it. work camp yeah i know you, i mean you hear about it in the news i think some uh i forget what newspaper he worked for but he just in russia he just got jailed. oh yeah it's a dangerous world out there you know like in north korea i, I wouldn't even go there it's a scary place. People go to these places and never return. You know, I think China, I think I could probably go back if I kept a low profile. But you know, you walk in, like you go, go through Hong Kong, through the airport in Hong Kong. They make you take your hat off in this one area because there's they have facial recognition cameras everywhere. Yep. You walk and be like, hat off. And you know, they're like, yeah. and they know who oh, yeah. you are the minute you walk through there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's that the camera and, uh, Mallory supposedly had that letter or no, it was oh, a yeah. picture. He a was picture of his wife. I think those two right there, are what keep the mystery alive. Yeah. He, he was purported he to be him. carrying a picture of his wife, Ruth, that he said he would leave on the summit. And that picture was not with him when we found him. Right. And a lot of people like to think like, oh, he left it on the summit. Yeah. Maybe. Um, this, this might sound like a conspiracy, but did you say they were going up the North side of the mountain? They were on the North. Yes. The Tibetan or Chinese side. Yeah. And the Chinese say that they're the first to have summited the North. Yes. They have, you know, took Irvine's body, destroyed the camera to, uh, you know, like they didn't make it. They didn't make it just in case, you know, we were the first ones up there. Uh, that's that's oh, yeah. the only thing I could think of. Yeah, no, you you're right on point with one of the great questions, conspiracies. A lot of a lot of people think that it might be. So there's a rumor out there that we have some, I can't call it substantive evidence, but several different people sharing the same story that some time ago the Chinese found the body of Sandy Irvin and removed the body and found, and then found the camera either botched it or didn't, who knows whether they botched it or not. And that they're at least not revealing any information about whether Mallory and Irvin made it. But then in 1960, the Chinese did go and summited via the Northeast Ridge 
and they claim that they were the first to summit on the north. Right. So they would certainly not, and that was like for the honor and glory of Chairman Mao during the mm. Cultural Revolution. And, you know, they literally, you know, put the communist flag on the summit. And, um, you know, the, the idea of removing Sandy Irvin's body is certainly not bizarre at all. They remove bodies. China does remove the bodies. They do not like any bodies on the mountain, even though you see them. Sometimes there's one guy that I remember was there in 1999 and uh, a New Zealand guy, it was driving him nuts and he went and moved the body and like kind of, it sounds really cold and heartless, but he kind of like tumbled him down off this cliff, you know, like birds were landing on him and pecking away at him and stuff. It's just, it's, it's awful. It's just weird watching, seeing this stuff. But, you know, in 2008, that was when the Beijing Olympics were, and they ran the Olympic torch to ran, like, like kind of using that. <laughs> they brought the torch to the summit of the of Everest, and leading up to the torch going to the summit, they closed the mountain. Nobody was allowed on the mountain except for they flooded it with Chinese climbers, and they removed bodies, garbage, tents, everything. They just cleaned it out. So some surmise it was that year. But Jamie McGinnis, our guide, says he talked to somebody who said, no, 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 it was way before 2008. Mm. But he never got the year. And I'm right. like, you got to ask better questions. He goes, I know, I was really nervous. I thought the guy looked like he didn't want me to ask any questions. And there's these cultural norms. You don't want to put people under pressure and want to embarrass him. And he was making right. his living as a guide in Tibet primarily. Right. So we got to get back there. We got to go back and find. So yeah. So are they covering up that evidence? Do they have the camera? Do, do they know where the body was? Pretty cool stuff. Obviously, I'm I'm nowhere near professional at this or know really anything. But from what I read, it would seem like, let's see if I can find it really quick here. There was a Chinese climber in the early 70s, I think, who said that he might have seen his body and then he was killed by an, an avalanche. Yep. Yep. Wang. Wang Hong Bao. He was actually a Japanese climber, and he took a walk west from their high camp um, and encountered an old English dead. Yeah. And it wasn't until years later that he ever even told anybody about it. He just never said anything about it. He just was like, eh, dead guy. Right. And he was on a mountain known as Annapurna, and he was sharing a tent with a Chinese guy. And even though to us, those languages might sound similar, they yeah. were having this weird, uh, yeah, dead, old English dead. And he talked about a hole in his cheek. And he said that he was like on his side sleeping, you know. And so he told this guy that story. And the next day, before you anybody could ask him 100,000 more questions, <laughs> he was killed in an avalanche. Right. Died. So just that one one short conversation was a piece of evidence then boom disappeared pretty cool story yeah i mean I maybe they traced it down maybe the only thing i can think of one. is that they worked from that somehow and found him do you think yeah. um he talked about the hole in the cheek do you think mm. he could have been talking about uh mallory is I, that a chance maybe um maybe 
I think maybe he saw the hole in his head and cheek, but here's, here's something. I don't know if he pointed to cheek. I, I always thought it was Mallory that he saw just to get, it makes sense from where he was and where he walked and right. where Mallory really is. It's very, it just works that that's the body he saw. So here's an interesting thing. So the, the condition of his body, even though he was perfectly frozen, he was really desiccated, all like really dried out. And over the 75 years, there are these birds. I don't know if this is wind and freezing and then almost not really thawing because it's always really cold up there. But these birds fly up there. They're like little crow birds with these little yellow beaks. They're just the cutest wow. thing. They peck at things. Um, they call them, uh, well, the Gorax are the bigger ones. There's another smaller bird. They fly up there and they'll catch the thermals and go flying around. Um, from the back of Mallory, all the clothes had been just, you know, annihilated over the years. So he was like essentially kind of like naked. Right. I, I, I've all, seen like the videos. Yeah, your videos. Yeah. And so there was a cavity where his butt cheeks, his ass, essentially used to be. It was like you could see into his body. It was gone. It's the weirdest thing. And even his calves were gone. You could just see the sinews and the cartilage and bone. It was surreal. It was like, you know, I mean, I, I guess it it just, I, it, the only way to explain it, it looked like, you know, something that had been frozen and pecked away at for all these right. years. So some surmise that maybe he was talking about his ass mm. had a hole in it. And right. it did, because there's no way he turned the body over to see the hole on his forehead. He was frozen in. Right, good point. Good no point, moving yeah. that body. But one of the, to me, one of the most reliable sightings of Sandy Irvin's body was up on the ridge, much higher up, not too far from where the ice axe was, but above the ice axe on the ridge. You know, that was in 1995, the more recent one. That was a Sherpa that was up there. And then again, he went and and identified that body in 2010, and um, the body's gone now because people have gone back to look for it. It's not there anymore. And when we were in Tibet in 2019, we called the Sherpa, this guy, and he lives in Denver, Colorado now. <laughs> Go figure. And when he knew what we were calling him about. Even yeah. though James McGinnis is longtime colleague and friend of his, he hung up. Oh, wow. Wouldn't talk. He must know something. <laughs> Maybe. So there's so many clues to this. It's so vast, so absolutely vast that anybody listening who has an interest in really diving in, I'm just throwing little pieces here and there out. I love it, and I'm obsessed to a certain extent with this mystery, but I'm not really a real historian. I'm I'm a fan, and I kind of know a lot about it. But if right. you were to put a timeline together, I'd say I defer to my colleague and friend, Jochen Hemleb, who wrote a book after the 1999 expedition called Ghosts of Everest. And that that's the book. That is the one you read that gives you all the clues, talks about the discovery of the body. He actually has lists of everything that we found on the body that we brought down the mountain, everything just so detailed. And it breaks down 
even though there's new stuff revealed 2019 we found out about the sightings of Irvin and things like that but for a real detective and then he did a book two years later called detectives on Everest both those books are really must reads and I'm going to ask him to pay me a dollar every time a book gets sold. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good dude. He's a really nice guy. Obsessed. He's just a pure, such a historian. He's actually a freak. But those right. that's what you need. Like, oh, my God, a little detail. Oh, you know, just tell me the story. I'm more of a storyteller. He's the, oh, one millimeter difference. <laughs> you know. Actually, just, I, I heard you and him. I can't remember if it was on one of your podcast episodes. I, I totally forget where I heard you guys. Um, and then talking about this, and I was like, "Yes, I gotta have, I gotta have him on." Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, I I have had Yakin on on a couple of occasions talking about not only the fine tuning of the clues, but what route Mallory and Irvin supposedly took. There's a big debate. Did they take this route called the Norton Couloir, which goes along the face under the ridge? Or did they do the second step, which goes up and on the on the actual ridge, the skyline? Big debate. Huge. Nobody really knows. Right. Um, how many cameras did they have, if any? You know, so but Yakin is writing a memoir right now, so he won't do any more interviews with me. <laughs> I was like, come oh, on, man. Oh, is really, no, Tom, I will not do another interview with you. I'm like, come on, man. No, <laughs> he won't. So he's like, not until his book is published. Then he's going to come back to his buddy, right, right. sell one book for him. But uh, also a really popular episode that you might have listened to is with my buddy, Mark Sinnott, who's wrote, you know, yep, yep. The third poll. that episode on that channel has like 300 and 50,000 views. And it's, if you ask me, it's a great episode if you're really into it. Right. To me, it's excruciatingly long. Like if I were to redo that episode today, it would be like 10 minutes long, but it's like 28 minutes. Just get to the point. I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, Mark. We we're sitting around a fire pit drinking martinis. So oh, there you go. There's our excuse <laughs> for, you know, going way too long. But all these episodes are like in there. And so I have this playlist called The Mystery of Mallory. Yep. You know? yep. And you just pick and choose. And there's so much content. These books. Are... I love that there's a mystery that isn't solved. Right? Isn't that, the, isn't that the great thing about life? Like we're always searching for answers. But if we had all the answers, it would That is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... This is a good one. It keeps us guessing. And and just real quick to you asked me, are there any plans to go back? Yep. There is a team that is and they asked me to go. I was like, well, dude, if you cough up the cash, I'm totally interested. But right. he goes, You're welcome to come on the trip to go next year to look for signs. And they want to go up and see um and a search around the Norton Kuwar. But but again, if the Chinese heard this, they'd be like, we're shutting it down, boys. You know. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so yeah, lots. Yeah, to it's awesome. There. It really is. Um, I'm a postal driver, so I've listened to your podcast. Um, I've listened every episode about this that you've had. Oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah. Good career, man. Awesome. That's that's a that's a solid job right there. Yeah, I mean it's it's not bad. I get to drive around all day and listen to podcasts. So that's what it's all about. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I 
I probably would have made a good school teacher or something or a college professor, but I was just hell bent on travel, right? adventure and climbing mountains. And so I, I quit my job in 1999 when I got hired to do that job for PBS and the BBC and never looked back. I just worked for myself all these years and uh, it's been good, but it's tough, man. You know, I don't always know where my paycheck is coming from, you know? Oh, so. right, yeah. Yeah, that's always Somebody's got to do it. But you, it, you definitely lived an exciting life. Um, There's some good stuff, yeah. We really just focused on the Everest stuff, but you've you've done so much more. I could suggest a future episode if, if this seems to work for you, but I can... Uh, I'll give you a mini encapsulation of it, but it's it deserves more uh, investigation. But I, in 2003, I helped, believe me, helped is a, <laughs> actually, actually, that's really pushing it, uh, build a 65 foot long ship made yeah. of Toro reeds and, and uh, sailed it from Chile to Easter Island yep. to see if it was possible for uh, pre-Columbian mariners to actually westwardly migrate toward Eastern Polynesia. So that's a, that's a whole <clears throat> that's a whole thing right there. You can that's a whole story, and we could do that right. one in a future episode. I'd love to. It's a great story. And I saw that. I did see that you that you did that. Um, and I could be totally wrong right now, but was that just featured on a TV series on the uh, Adventure Club? Um. There are other people who are doing, who have done that expedition. My actual footage from that, I haven't seen it out there, and it has had very limited airplay. Like it's played on PBS and things like that, but it didn't really get out there that much, unfortunately. Oh, man, Scott, I think I have it on my Everest Mystery YouTube channel. I think it's just like kind of more of a travelogue in a way but it's 58 minutes long it's really good it's it's fun man building the ship and you know i just have to ask you gotta ask you quickly is that something sure. did you did you take part in that because you're, you're interested in that yeah um pre-columbian well, contact yeah when i got i got back from everest and i was really uh i came back from that expedition with a lot of disappointment in terms of the dynamics of the team and what happened after photographs were taken of George Mallory's body. And the there was just this really interesting battle, fight, financial, legal, for rights to the photographs and who's yeah. going to make money. And, and I saw a real ugly side of people and human beings. And yeah. I was really discouraged about i i attributed it to mountain climbing and so in 1999 and when i got back i was like i quit and i was going to try to go do a different expedition on the north face but it has completely unrelated to this the mallory and urban thing but um so i was looking for something else to kind of sink my teeth into to have a i didn't want to just be associated with mount everest and which is stupid because that i'm so into it but <laughs> a buddy, this guy reached out to me he saw me i was on the cover of a newspaper in springfield massachusetts he's like hey i got this cool story man i'm gonna build a ship and sail it to easter island what he goes come on you be my filmmaker all right boom instant <laughs> good buddies he's he's a yeah he 
really an accomplished adventurer. And so I dove in, dove in completely and fell in the story. <laughs> yeah, literally. And so I was on the boat and did it. And I was, it was a long, supposed to take 40 days. And the voyage was 72 days long, ran out of food, ran out of fuel. It was oh, grim, dude, it was grim, but it was in <laughs> Pacific. So we were like, you know, wearing shorts right. yeah. barefoot, sitting in the sun all day and it was pretty cool actually great story yeah that i can share and expound upon anytime yeah that'd be awesome i think the i think the theory behind that isn't it um people from never mind i don't i don't know i don't know what i'm talking about so i'll get if you <laughs> want to break it down i can get if you really want to do this for a future episode even if we did it like whenever it doesn't matter i can get you some intel on it or some research, but yeah, it's all to do with <clears throat> where, who, who populated Polynesia. Right. Yeah, it's exactly. Like hundreds and hundreds of islands, right? Yeah. Did people come from like Australia or yeah. Asia, you know, like, like Vietnam or, yep. you know, Southeast Asia, um, and, or did they come from South America? Yeah. And so there's a lot of prevailing thought to either and thor heyerdahl who did the contiki expedition in 1947 truly one of the greatest it's, a, it's a, it might as well have been flying to the moon to me one of the great expeditions that has ever happened in the history well at least modern history you know we're talking marco polo and, mm, and yeah that's that's pretty cool stuff too right oh, yeah. there but um the uh he believed that they were westwardly migrating and a lot of people it's that's been really shot down that it was, mm -hmm. it was an eastward migration and that that was only just random people might end up on easter island from south america like fishermen in boats and caught in a storm and right out to sea or something like that but nobody it was just pure luck that people got there you know so it's really it's cool it's it's amazing stuff and and i but then i got back into mountain climbing again I just had the bug. So I started traveling in Alaska and mm -hmm. South America and things like that, you know, just trying to make a living doing films. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> um, I just had the, I guess one more question here. Yeah. Let's go. One um, more hit me. So has anything weird ever happened to you while you're out there? Maybe it's something you can't explain. I know a lot of times uh, these adventurers who go to really extreme places, they something called the third man factor mm -hmm. where they feel someone with them. I think maybe even sometimes they see someone and they always seem to help them along in some way, push them further, you know, than they thought they yes. could go. Did oh, anything yeah. like that ever happen to you or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in 1999, I had told you that I went back up to the body of George Mallory with Andy Politz on May 16th. On May 1st, when the body was originally discovered, I set out with the team and filmed them. And then, you know, we went up and got, you know, well into 26 plus thousand feet and my oxygen apparatus malfunctioned. Ooh. So I couldn't get it to work. And I was the only guy of the six without a radio. Oh, man. So I couldn't go like, hey, you know, get down here and help me right. out. Whatever. I was like, oh, my God. So and I couldn't see. They, they were all like fanned out. I didn't know where anybody was. And so 
when I left for the expedition at the time, my son was 15 months old. I was a real sentimental bastard. I just remember leaning over his crib saying, I promise little buddy, I'm not going to die. I'm going to come home and I'm going to see you and I'm not going to do anything stupid. I'm not going to let ambition kill me. I'll be back. I was kind of this promise to this little, you know, like 15 month old kid as if he knew, but I knew, right? Right. So my oxygen apparatus malfunctions. I take the pack off. I'm trying to fix it. Couldn't do it. Then I started, and we, this is our first rotation up into the death zone. So we were really tapped and you needed the oxygen. I did at least. Um, they were all on it. And, um, so I hiked for about 10 minutes without it. And man, I was like, whoa, oh my God. I was like, I, I was, couldn't keep up. I thought I'd probably kill myself if I keep going. So I had this, I had a fit. I was really angry. I was like, God damn. I took my ice axe and I threw it down and I wasn't clipped into any ropes. And I was like, and I was so angry. I kind of just threw my, it was like having a, just some little pity fit, you know, and I stumbled and slid and it was steep, you know, and I'm reaching out and there was this old rope from a previous expedition, all this frayed rope. And I grabbed the rope just instinctively and it stopped me. And I was like, I looked down, I thought, good thing I grabbed the rope. Um, and I looked up and about 20, 15 feet to my right, I saw in the time it was real to me. I saw my son. He was, you know, kind of walking toward me, like, you know, coming at, coming for me. And I stood up to grab him. And it was, I, when I stood up and put my arms out, I thought, then my senses came to me and I thought it's time to go now. I'm seeing, I just saw my son. And um, so I turned around and went down instead of going up and, you know, within an hour, the body of Mallory was found. Um, So that was an apparition to me and it was a sign. It was very helpful to me. And I don't know how it happened. I don't know if it was a gift from some higher power or something like that. And then in 2019, now you can imagine, so we find the body of George Mallory in 1999. I went 20 years thinking, 20 years thinking every day, many, many times about George Mallory, but wondering what happened to Sandy Irvin, this 22-year-old kid at the beginning of the expedition turned 23. And I always felt really sad for him just this like like he was trapped up there like i always felt like mallory his soul flew away i just felt like he was at peace like i'm out of here i felt like sandy was trapped right and i felt like he's still cold on the mountain and this is just yep. a vision i'd always had i think i felt like like some connection to him so i would train before the 2019 expedition, I would train and hike into this area called Tuckerman's Ravine in Huntington oh, yeah. on Mount Washington, very well-known trail, but nobody was on it because I'd train first thing in the morning, midweek, and get and just haul ass up there. And there was this one corner, this is really grizzled old tree that I would call, I used to call it Hobbit Corner, because it's like it kind of feels like hobbits would live in there. It was just this beautiful place. And every time I get to Hobbit Corner, I would, I swear, I hear somebody walking behind me and breathing. 
turn around. I'd be like, oh, shit, man, what the hell? I, and it would happen almost every time that I would go there. And like, I am hearing something. And after a while, I talking to my wife about it and just telling her, and she was like, maybe it's Sandy Irvin. Maybe he wants you to set his soul free on Everest. And it just, it pulled, it just worked for me. And now it's a story. I didn't see anything, but I heard. And when I went to Everest, I kept that image really bright in my mind during that time with the intent of like communicating, knowing his body is up there somewhere and to set him free, even if I didn't see him. And so that was really my ultimate goal. Now, very kind of psychic and I guess spiritual, maybe not spiritual, but kind of otherworldly, not a physical thing. And um, so I, when I got back, I went back to Hobbit Corner and never heard, haven't heard the, oh, the footsteps man. ever since. So I don't know. I'm thinking Sandy's free. I think That's Sandy's awesome. Like, That's yeah. So story. yeah, those are my two little ghost stories, not ghosts, but presence. Yeah, that first one, that that's a great story. Oh, yeah. That that could have very well saved your life, you know? You never know. It might have. Oh, yeah. I was that's... intoxicated with the idea of catching up to those boys. Right. So I turned around, but fast after that. I that's don't even cool. know. My, my son's 26 now. So is that right? So maybe he was like 18 months or something. I got, So I'm going to have to, I think, I don't even know if he knows that story. <laughs> oh, man, you'll have to tell him. He'd like that one. I'm gonna have to tell him that, huh? You'd think the old man spinning yarns. Listen to your old man before I get too old to remember these things. Um, do you would you mind if I use that, cut that Please. video and just use that? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean. All right, my man. I think that's good. Yeah, that was great. great wow, to you. you've lived a an awesome life. I, I wish I could do something like that, but I know I just can't. You it's never awesome. know, man. Dream. <laughs> All I can say is dream. If if there's something you want to do, no matter what your job is or how busy you are, if there's something that you're fantasizing about, like some objective out there, just just dream it and put the energy out there to the universe. And so, if it's meant to be, the pieces will fall together. You never know. Right. I actually got a, a weird story about something like that. So I work for the postal service. And so people, they, I just barely started a couple of years ago and there's, there's people who have been ahead of me for years now. Um, and so I wrote down, there's this one route in our office that I really wanted. I wrote it on a piece of paper and I put it underneath my pillow. So I, you know, I'd sleep on it every night and then randomly out of nowhere, you know, one guy quits and then you know, a couple months later, another carrier decides he does. He's our postmaster now, and then boom, I'm I'm in that route. <laughs> Amazing, um, you, that is manifesting, right? Things. Yeah, that is how. That's how you do it. I like, as I said, I pictured what it was like to climb onto the summit of Mount Everest thousands of times, and when I got there, I was l literally laughing out loud, going, "Oh yeah." I've been here before and it was like, it was really funny. And I'm just there with my friend and we just laughed. I was like, yeah. this is bizarre. He, it was his fifth time. So he was like boring, but you know, 
anyway that's awesome but um but yeah nick anytime man if you want to talk about raid ships or if you need to fill in any holes on this thing just let me know i'd be happy to pick this one back up anytime yeah i mean i'm definitely interested in the the read your your voyage anytime um, yeah you can put anytime. something together at some point yeah yeah give a little space get the people not be sick of me and then you know maybe <laughs> wait till the end of the summer or next fall or you name it just keep plugging away at the podcast man and and i'll give you a, a i'll pimp this a little bit i'll put it i'll figure out a way to get you know post it on i mean who knows how many people will get to it but i'll you know i'll share it and let people know about it for sure yeah i mean and i don't know i think i can send you the whole episode if you want sure please unedited, do unedited or anything so yeah whatever the links are just send no or whatever yo sure yeah whatever you want but if you want to send me the the link or however you want to do it i'll take it and i'll share it so people can go to your site or your page and and get it from there Be happy to do that yeah um oh and i guess i should i can throw this in uh so you want to you want to share what your your podcast and your youtube channel what that's all about you want to plug sure. that or sure my i have a youtube channel it's called everest mystery and that's pretty easy to find you you do the youtube and then the at everest mystery and that is a, a very everest centric i talk a lot about the eight thousand meter peaks 14 of them in the world and the mystery of mallory and irvin mount everest it's a fun channel and a growing community and then my podcast is called the happiness quotient and I do, yeah, I put a lot of the episodes that I do on Everest Mystery on the Happiness Quotient, but on the Happiness Quotient, I'll have musicians, adventurers, environmentalists, you know, writers, authors. So there's, it's a broader spectrum. And then, and that's a cool way for me to meet people that I wouldn't otherwise get a chance to meet. Hey, would you like to be on my podcast? Boom. Suddenly I'm talking to some person I just admire greatly so it's a different sampling not just the mount everest stuff great perfect yeah any of your uh your films um most recent one i worked on was the lost on everest the 2019 expedition that we filmed with national geographic that's on disney plus yep now that's a cool film a really fun one and coincidentally the first film in 1999 on Everest is also called Lost on Everest. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Figure, it's, so, it's like, come on, man. Can't you come up with another title? Nope. This is <laughs> um, you know, a lot of a lot of little tidbits here and there, but a lot of my films were more micro films. So there many of them you can find on my YouTube channel, like Storm Over Denali, which is this this storm I was in on Mount McKinley, which is now Denali. Uh uh, a trip I did on Aconcagua a Mountain there called The Power of the Mountain, a uh, documentary about Brad Washburn, who founded the Boston Museum of Science called uh, Alaskan Reminiscences. So there's, yeah, those are the, those are my real heart's passion to do films like that. But musicians, man, that's like, the older I get, I'm more drawn to just musicians, like getting on stage and filming with people, doing documentaries about. So I've got some stuff on. I've got a different YouTube channel, but I won't. I don't want to spread people too thin. So, um, but yeah, I love doing the music stuff very much. 
You got a YouTube channel for musicians? Well, I have one I call it. Uh, what do, let me just make sure I get this right. I, I change the name from time to time. It's, um, I used to call it eyes open productions, but it's right. Uh, okay. Um, uh, my co-host, he's a musician. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I mean, he's not, he's not super famous or anything, but I, oh, no. they've been featured on uh VPR and stuff. They're called luminous crush. I don't know. You probably never oh, heard of it. Cool. Really? No, that's really impressive. Yeah, yeah, Dharma podcasts and other beautiful things. I've got some, you know, Clarence Gatemouth Brown, this interview with a, like a rock and roll photographer, Jay Blakesburg, and he's done a lot of work with like Fish and the Grateful Dead and Goose. Um, doc, a great live performance of the song Born in Chicago, which is a Paul Butterfield film, um, song that made him famous. I'm very, very close friends with his son, this film is like 13 years ago and it's still racking it's got 110,000 <laughs> views so it's good stuff dharma podcasts and other beautiful things that's a fun one it's there's some good stuff on there Great. I love that one yeah but uh, I appreciate you giving you know pimping those it's really nice to tell people about these yeah that's cool um perfect great all right my man thanks a lot that was awesome it was very good being here. I appreciate you taking the time to ask me some cool questions. Great job. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'll get back to you at some point. Please do. Let me know ship. if there's anything you need. Yeah. Read ship anytime. But if you need anything in the interim to prepare it, if you need any intel, just email me or whatever, and I'll help you out. I'm around. Perfect. Thank you. All right, my dude. Have a nice night. Look forward to seeing you again. All right. Take care, bud. Bye. Bye. All right, guys, that was great. Man, I wish I could, I could live a life as exciting as that. We, we can't even picture it in our mind. Like we, we haven't been there. The majority of us, maybe there's a listener, uh, who has. But stepping foot on Mount Everest, even just base camp, is is dangerous. First of all, but it, it, it would be so incredible to go up on that mountain and just experience that i'm I'm sure base camp is as far as i could get but the summit what was it i don't have my my notes here next to me it's, it's over twenty eight thousand feet i believe or it's 27 let's see here blah 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 blah, blah. of course i don't have the it's twenty nine thousand twenty nine feet that is ridiculous. Um, I just pulled that up here on Google really fast. I thought I had a note about it, but I don't. Um, can you just imagine being at the top of that and looking down? You could definitely see your house from there, uh, no matter where you lived. Calm has been in, in the death zone on multiple occasions. Imagine just just going to Everest, not even to to summit the mountain, but just hang out in the death zone and, you know, film other people doing doing their job that you know doing what they went there to do that it's so crazy it's just i can't i try to picture it and i just can't even imagine it um but yeah tom pollard guys he tom pollard he's he's incredible incredible the things he's done i wish
I I just I keep saying I wish. I just wish I could do something as cool as that with my life. Um drag my wife and my my kids with me. But no, that'll never happen. But um that's uh that's Tom Pollard, guys. An award-winning filmmaker, high altitude cameraman, adventurer, explorer. He's uh he's an incredible man. He's achieved so much. He's so down to earth, super humble. He's he's he was great. But yeah, uh, Tom Pollard, he's definitely full canon. He's not almost canon. Tom Pollard is definitely in the full canon club. Thank you.